Hey everybody, welcome back to a new season of Protect Your Noggin. We're excited about exploring not just now themes that we've been doing uh, a lot with in the past related to problems, things that are problematic behaviors, cultures, and teachings. And we're gonna kind of be shifting into, yes, some of that, but more importantly, the ways in which we can live into a life of freedom, uh, a life of emancipation. And so on this show, the new season's theme is going to be about complete, total, full-spectrum emancipation. We're working on the adjectives there, but the idea is we're looking towards mental, financial, and spiritual emancipation, and we're going to look at the ways in which these things are interrelated. For today's show, we're going to catch you up on some more things that have been going on in our lives as a family and our experiment to to find freedom in our own lives. And we're gonna talk especially today about the big question, where should one live? Thanks for being with us. Here we go. All right, Stacy. We're still in Portland. Yes. We're going to catch the, the good listeners up on what's going on. Uh, our dear Sydney is back in Southern California. She went to Disneyland with her mom and then her uh, sister, and bro- sister and brother who are young and is uh, visiting some friends. She'll be coming back out uh, on Tuesday. But right now as we're sitting here, we're thinking about the fact we just made a big move <laughs> and we're thinking about, you know, why would we move one place Versus another place and, you know, and even as we were talking about some things that had happened in, in our life in the last few days, um, people are wondering, okay, well, gosh, you know, what, is, what does this mean, you know, for whether or not you're satisfied with moving to Portland? And ultimately, that led us to the question, what do we want to get out of life and how does deciding where to live on the globe where does that fit in to this question of, of freedom? So before before we get to that, I want to play the little game, baby. Okay. And you're the contestant, ah. and I'm the asker. Why not? <laughs> well, we'll I see. I can't how ask I the do. cat and dog. Thank you very much. <laughs> All right. So top ten answers on the board. What states? Oh, I think I'm going to do terrible. Well, on you this. can guess. You can guess. What states? See if you can get the the top states for people moving to these states. That oh. is population okay. shift. People have left where they were mm-hmm. and they're moving to somewhere else. Where are people going? Give me, give me a few. We've been playing a lot of quiz, quiz game nights, you know, tri- trivia nights. So this is in that, that zone. Okay. So Idaho. Idaho is definitely on the, on the list. 53,000 people in 2021. This is what we're looking at. People that made a big move. They're mm-hmm. moving to Idaho. Why do you think they're going there? Well, I will say that there are um, lots of places that are absolutely gorgeous. It uh, is a beautiful, You know, when we've driven through state. Idaho, I and mean, there's some really, really, really beautiful, like, rivers and scenery and, and things like that also. Um, I mean, they're known to be more conservative as right. well. And, um, you know, they're definitely uh, not... Uh, marijuana friendly um right so if you're if you're looking at these other states it's a it's kind of a haven for more of a conservative mm-hmm. way of being mm-hmm. and i noted it was just a couple days ago i was talking to a police officer who says i'm leaving portland i don't like it here as a cop for obvious reasons and uh, one of them being of course that the the police force has been severely reduced mm-hmm. we'll get to that in a second 
But he said, after this, I'm moving to Idaho. Ah. Very good. So Idaho's on the board at 53,000, but there's more. I would say Texas is another Texas one. is number one with 310,000, and one of those people... Joe Rogan. Joe Rogan, and I think that <laughs> I makes think a he, difference. He brought a following with mm-hmm. him, probably, right? Um, and I, Same kind of thing. And I would imagine, too, in, in Texas, there is um, the idea of perhaps what people um, would say personal freedoms of... I don't know. Um, they're, they're probably a little bit more um, interested in guns. And, Gun friendly, uh, lower taxes, income for tax. For businesses especially yeah. too, I think. We just finished our taxes. And while I got some money back from the federal, I had to pay in $1,000 for California because, you know, mm-hmm. income tax is pretty high. Here in Portland, you got an income tax, no sales tax, just 10, 15 minutes up the road, you shift to Washington, Washington, which has flips. no income tax. And then, yet yeah, it does have sales tax. And these things, of course, affect the way the state views its tax base. In many ways, an income tax is going to more significantly affect people that make more money. Mm-hmm. And the sales tax is going to affect poorer people. And so it's kind of nice if you're not making a lot of money. When we go to the store, isn't it pretty wild? When you go in and, and you get a $5 something and it's just $5. Yeah. <laughs> there's no yeah. weird taxes. There's yeah. no surprises. It's that just. That is true. It is It is what you said it was going to yeah. be. And it, it, it over time starts to be something pretty noticeable. Well, and the other thing where that really comes into play is, you know, if you're ever at a restaurant or something like that with a group of people, you know, sometimes it. it you know, it's harder to factor in uh, the taxes and, you know, yeah. and everything into, <laughs> yeah, into you're going out. you know, the whole piece. So like people, you know, they know what their food costs, but they sometimes forget to contribute to the additional, you know, tip and tax t- part, you know, because yeah. it just, it's interesting how quickly that grows. You right. Know? Um, but back to states, states. Well, I'll say this. Yeah. <laughs> um, I would think that the, one of the number one states that people are fleeing from would be California. Yeah, people are heading <laughs> out of California. It's not um, in here. That's right. Yeah, so that's where they're leaving. Um, and I think that that also affects, well, I, I'll explain, um, you know, some of what's, what I see happening in some of these areas too, when California money goes to other places. But, yeah. um, but I, I don't know. Um, I'm wondering if Oregon's in there. Oregon is not. Or people are okay. moving out, out of, of Oregon. Oregon. Now, there are people that are frustrated when Californians and others come mm-hmm. in to Portland. But there is a saying here in Portland that I've noticed a couple times. Portland's the place where people are angry when you move here and angry when you leave. We even mm-hmm. saw a piece of graffiti that said, don't move to Texas. Gotcha. Gotcha. <laughs> you know. um, yeah. So are, is Florida in there? Florida is number two with 20, I'm sorry, 211,000 people moved to Florida. That's been something that people have done for a while. And I think that has a lot to do yeah, with folks leaving after COVID, the confines of a highly dense living situation in New York. And a lot of the time people bust down from the Northeast down to Florida for retirement, but right. there are other reasons. It's also, you know, a Southern state. It's more conservative friendly in many ways, depending uh, on where you are. Yeah. Is North Carolina one of them? North Carolina is, uh, is 93,000. It's almost 94,000. So that's on the board. You were just destroying this thing. <laughs> Although the Oregon was a little bit. Oh. I know. Yeah. I was just, I knew some people. It's a small so state that's why anyway. I, was, I was curious. Um, uh, and Tennessee. Tennessee is on the board with 55,000. You were destroying this. 
But how many more states do I have to come up well, with? Well, let me give you the rest of them. Arizona is in third I was, with 98,000. That was going to be another one that I mentioned. Um, and we really, you know, we, we loved some, you know, being in Tucson. Oh, Tucson you know, was great. We had a great time there. A lot we, of folks, though, going into Phoenix, people going into places where they can retire a little bit more inexpensively, just popping over from California if you mm-hmm. want to stay in touch with family there. Georgia is in there at 73,000. Mm-hmm. South Carolina with 59,000. Utah with 56. Did you say Tennessee? I did. Tennessee. Uh, And uh, we were talking about Joe Rogan moving to Texas. There was also uh, Joe Rogan's friend, kind of, um, the the amazingly hilarious and wonderfully spiritual. Oh, you're talking about uh, Duncan Trussell. Duncan Trussell. But he went to the southeast. He went to North Carolina, which now he's debating... (laughs) About moving back, back to yeah. L.A. Because, and this is the thing for people from metropolitan areas, when you, you want to expect to be able to go out to a couple eateries, a few bars, some open mic you know, poetry, that sort of thing, you're, you're not always going to be able to get that in some yeah, parts you, of the country. Yeah, it can be, I mean, you can have a nice, maybe big house or something, but there could, you can kind of feel isolated sometimes and that you don't necessarily identify with. You know, I mean, I guess I mean, part of it, too, is, um, you know, when... When you haven't grown up somewhere, we've moved to many different places. We've lived in, I, I don't know, like... England, we, Philadelphia, Kentucky, Colorado, Colorado, the mountains of Colorado, Washington, the plains of Colorado, Washington State City, a little Oregon, bit more rural. Obviously, yeah. California. Yeah. Um, Orange County, San Diego, rural. We've seen some things, and they're all really different. Right. We've been in, we lived in Kentucky. Um, but... You're definitely, when you come into an area, um, you know, you're definitely an outsider and you have to kind of find that community and those connections again and who you identify with. And it's kind of hard as a, you know, as an adult. It's it's scary as an adult. To make adult, new adult friends. It's like going to middle school or something. Yeah. Terrifying. (laughs) You know, and so, I mean, if you have kids, sometimes it's easier through the kid connection. And I'm sure that's what draws a lot of people also to finding a church home, you know, to also find that community as well. Uh, So it's hard, you know, you it's easy if you don't, you know, join certain groups or, you know, clubs or whatever. churches, you you mentioned churches. That was Mm -hmm. a big one. I think one of the reasons there was such a big boom in Orange County where we grew up of evangelicalism in a way that you don't see in the Pacific Northwest or in the Northeast is because so many people were there for the first time. A lot of baby boomers came to this new area for development. They had gone from from orange groves to people storage, and it was affordable, it was clean, it was a great climate, but people didn't have connections, so they started going to to churches, and those churches became some of the biggest churches, especially early on, like Saddleback. Mm -hmm. We knew so many people that weren't really that interested in church, but they knew if they wanted their kids to connect up, if they wanted to be able to have business networks, that's that's a good place to do it. The networking is really huge because so many of the businesses in California were things like real estate, people like kind of going in to work for themselves, whether you have your air conditioning and heating company or, you know, construction or whatever it is. And so building those networks, um, is a huge, you know, huge way to try to survive. Yeah. It was a big boom. Yeah. Now we growing up, you know, our understanding of poverty and racism was definitely skewed partly Mm -hmm. because we didn't see it. Mm-hmm. Partly because the non-white f- people in our lives often were 
able to, in some ways, become part of the system mm-hmm. just by virtue of where we were living. And we didn't really understand that. You know, well, we didn't really understand, um, you know, growing up, the, the way in which your politics and your religion is going to be framed mm-hmm. by uh, an assumption that things are okay with the economy, mm-hmm. that things are okay racially, right? And we were kind of silly because in our 20s, then we moved to Kentucky and that's where we realized, oh, there is a, there's a kind of racism that's an old-timey racism that's yeah. pretty abrupt and explicit. And so we, well, we and found ourselves... We had friends that you know, were in a mixed marriage, and you know, he as a black gentleman could not shop in a nearby town or else he yeah, would, Corbin, he, Kentucky. He would have gotten beaten yeah. up. You know? Yeah, and, and we got run out by the KKK. So, right. <laughs> so that was that. And, and, and kind of going back to kind of backtrack on it, we had all our stuff. When we first moved in, we thought this was going to be, you know, this idealized Southern oh, I mean, there community were, life. Yeah, there were so many things that were so wonderful about being yeah. there. We had our boat, you know, you could go fishing with yeah. the kids like at three or four in the afternoon after you were done teaching. I've never lived so well. You know, I had a I, boat, <laughs> I had a minivan, I had Those a, days, a dog, I had a riding lawnmower tractor. And not only was bedroom house. not only was I, you know, making dinner every night, I was often making dessert as well that included like a homemade pie or something. Yeah. There were like a lot of, you know, anyway, there was some really good times that we had there, but there was a sense of isolation and our biggest, I guess, group of being able to like talk to were the other faculty members at the college, right? Because they were also outsiders, um, you know. And we definitely like, you know, I still tried to connect with some of the local folks. I mean, yeah. even we went into the hills to go to the rodeo. Yeah, and even well, and even just you know. When, uh, you know, when Augie was little, he would, you know, sometimes get invited to a couple of the birthday parties and stuff. Mm -hmm. And so we would participate in anything that we were invited into. But I think people were intimidated um, by us for, I think, you know, the... The academic side. The academic side. Yeah. Yeah, There's, you know, we had um, a certain level of education that a lot of them didn't have the same access to. And they think they felt threatened. But the main thing I was going to say is that, so I I just assumed that it was this idealistic uh, kind of place. And then, of course, some kids from the haulers came in and uh, just stole all our stuff out of the garage. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had to chase uh, chase some of them out of the uh, the English professor's house next door with a World War One rifle, which I wasn't going to use. So I just shook shook my fist at them as they left the well, lawn. And, and so one of the things that I am understanding more now, um, and especially I'm sure that was sort of felt in that community, was you know, these faculty members would come in, they would, there was a faculty row where they had houses that we'd, you know, purchase those houses, but they were, you know, for the area, they were nicer homes and things. And I think, you know, when, when outside money comes into a smaller town that is, you know, has, you know, lower incomes and like, you know, lots of struggles and things. Well, in this case, it was, it was coal mines getting closed down and not, having a lot of other things to do in town, put a lot of people into financial hardship. Right. And so they, you know, if other people from outside are coming in and buying up homes or willing to rent homes at certain prices, then the locals end up um, not being able to afford to live where, where, where they grew up, where they're from. And this is, I mean, this was explained to us too, also in Colorado. It's a big deal there. A lot of Californians, especially in oh, Colorado. Yeah. And it is not fun to say you're from Colorado. I just need to stay here in Portland for long enough to say I'm from Portland. You mean it's not fun to say you're from California? <laughs> I'm sorry, it's not fun. Yeah, that's right. When you go to Colorado or you go to Oregon or Washington. Any right? of these places. But partly it's, it's that economic, it's that economic shift. Yeah, and... 
oddly that a lot of the poverty in California is kind of, you don't really see it as much because it's behind closed doors and what could look like an otherwise really nice neighborhood, even, even a gated uh, house that maybe inside is in ill repair. The kids don't have enough food to eat or whatever. And you're just trying to keep up with, you know, just being in this area, you know, the gas prices are, I mean, even it's high everywhere, but it's really high here in Orange County right now. Uh, I don't know, six, seven dollars sometimes, I think. I don't know for sure because I'm not there. But, you know, it's really hard to just survive. And you you can't really get anywhere without a car in in Southern California. And more importantly, if you want to be in proximity to some of these jobs in Southern California, you might have to come in from the Inland Empire and you're, you're riding on the road for an hour in the morning and an hour and a half at home, on the way back. And that, that takes a toll on human beings, Yeah, you know? So you make that decision. You're like, all right, I want to be here. But the only way to be here is to, to dedicate like 10 hours a week to being on the road or, or more, yeah. you know, yeah. I mean, and then you're paying. And then when the gas prices go up, that becomes a big deal. So, but over time we've always kind of felt this where we, we kind of come in wide eyed and with like, you know, naivete and mm-hmm. smiles. And then, you know, we get a little bit of a snap back to, to kind of help us to realize that life can have its, its difficulties. Um, we didn't mention last time on the show that in, in addition to all of the things that were going on in our lives, on Thanksgiving, after Augie died, Augie's motorcycle, his, his Ducati that he and I had been building up and working on, was stolen from out front of his place in Costa Mesa. Right. And they surely knew that we just hadn't been going back there. So people were casing it out. They stole it. The it kids... only took a few days, but that, yeah, it was, it's kind of crazy that, you know, um, and I think that they also, you know, theft in general has gone up, I think, everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> you know, especially, you know, if you can at all get into anything unopened. But yeah, so s- stealing a motorcycle or cars or catalytic converters or whatever. Yeah, we had had the catalytic converter stolen there. I mean, and really close to Newport Beach where there's just a lot of money, you know, uh, uh, Costa Mesa is, is a kind of a blending of that, you know, a little bit Santa Ana, a little bit, uh, uh, Newport, uh, Corona del Mar. And so we had some theft there, but the allegedly for a long time, the, the language was Irvine where we were living was the safest city in America. And we had some pretty, pretty odd and, and, and kind of frightening sometimes experiences, I'm not sure exactly why. Partly it's, I think people have said that for at least for a while it was neutral gang territory. Right. So it's a meeting place if you're coming up from the South. Nobody really has declared it. So yeah, so people are, you know, some kind, kind of like fighting for, I don't know, like, well, they're not even trying to own it. It's just that it's a, a... It's just a place to do the yeah. thing. So like out, out in front of us, people are always doing drug deals. They stole uh, our surfboard. They, right. they were uh, kind of prowling in people's houses. But the thing that was kind of odd about that, and this is an allegation that I've heard, I'm not, you know, not sure about it, but everybody seems to have confirmed it when we lived there, that a lot of the time the Irvine police would just take people and... and instead of booking them there or, or writing them up there, they would just take them to Huntington Beach or Santa Ana and get them out of there. Uh, there was, there was... Uh, a well, t- it, it is know. interesting that here you have a town that has completely their own police force. Yes. So... It's been done, yes. Irvine, but, but, no, yeah, right. well, I'm saying Irvine Police was definitely a separate thing. From the Orange County from Sheriff. From the Orange County, right. yes. So I had, you know, we 
if we were in Irvine, you had to deal with the Irvine thing and then slightly different rules and system, mm. you know, outside of it. Anyway, it's just so they have a lot more control yeah. over how they patrol. Yeah, the enforcement, wh- the what, narrative. Whatever they do. Yeah. Yes, yeah. exactly. And there was a time, we won't mention where uh, he was, but Augie was working somewhere. And uh, the sound of a body hit the roof. Mm-hmm. And well, and, and so then basically everybody's kind of like now wondering, you know, what to do. So then suddenly a fire alarm gets pulled. They go ahead and empty the building and ambulance and fire truck and all that. The police and everything can come. And then they just told everybody false alarm. Don't. You know, everybody can, just can come can back, back in. in. But, but this, they were able to get yeah. the all of the like emergency team, <laughs> all the you know get uh, you know get an ambulance and police and everything um, involved without it looking like there was something traumatic that just happened there. Right, because that would and, be bad for business. And they told the employees to not inquire, and they were told a story that it was like I don't know some sort of heavy, a uh, heavy. Uh, I don't want to give out too much information, but yeah. some kind of equipment fell, it fell out. And yeah, that right, was right. what that was. Which, I mean... Probably they, wasn't. Yeah. And the suspicion, and I think this is part of the suspicion, is there's a kind of fear that happens when you're living somewhere where it looks good on the outside, but you have a sense that there's something shady going on behind the scenes. Right. And, and whether that's true of Irvine or not, Irvine was built at least the places where we had been, mm-hmm. it was built in such a way that we wouldn't have conversations with our neighbors. And when you don't have conversations with your neighbors, you don't know what's going on inside right. the doors of that house. Right. And you're encouraged not to inquire, not really. Your, your friends are going to come from a different area of your life, not yeah. your neighborhoods in Irvine. I've always find it more disturbing to not really know what's up. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd rather know what the real crime is or what's, you know, what's going on usually. Yeah. You, you want to see it up front. Then to, then to have it going on, but not know what's happening. I don't want to live in a false sense of security. Right. And one of the things though, and, and this is also part of it, you, you've got to ask, all right, so why would you go to Portland? It's, there's, there's a lot of trash places. There's a lot of, uh, encampments. There is uh, a lot of prowling in cars and, and auto theft and so forth. Why would, why would you want to do this? Well, part of it is the question was for us, wh- wh- where are we going and why? One of the things we want to do is engage the world as it is. And where I find my own personal uh, joy and calling would be to work with at-risk young people in an educational setting that's not traditional. So I want it to be somewhere where I could even walk mm-hmm. to a couple things. And there are, there are places here that even if I don't work for them, I'm going to want to volunteer with the young people in these settings. And I recognize that I want to be a part of the communities that I'm engaging. I'm not going to, in a, some kind of patronizing way, be aloof and at a distance and then come on in. All that to say... Well, oh, go ahead. All that to say. All that to say... Our recent scenario is we, uh, we unfortunately, when we moved to this place, we had a, a gate that was just too thin for us to get the truck backed into it. So we were planning on parking it behind a, a gate uh, and we had to park In it on the street yeah, and on a driveway. And because we parked our, our beloved camper, St. George... You you may have heard us talking about St. George. We lived in it for about 60% of the last three years, traveling from, you know, Florida to Montana and, and all over the place. 
Yeah, so basically... Uh, somebody stole it. Well, yeah, so Wednesday morning at like 7 in the morning, I'm like kind of hearing some noise, so I look out the window. I think I see like the reflection of the like the red taillight at the back of the truck um, kind of lit up, but the sun is also kind of pouring in, you know, and, and so I'm thinking, oh, maybe it's just the reflection from the sun, which it really couldn't have been because the, the camper, you know, like blocks that direction of the sun. So yeah. like, it was kind of like a willful suspension of disbelief, I think in my head. Cause mm-hmm. I was like, this can't, you know, no, that can't be something like Stacy just let, you know, your, your mind's being over, overactive. And then I'm hearing like kind of a truck get, you know, fired up and I'm like looking out the window. I'm like, I don't see where that car is. That's interesting. You know? And then all of a sudden, um, then I hear a little louder and I look and I see the, the camper truck driving away and I'm like, Jeff, somebody you, you chased driving. after it barefoot. I don't know what you were going to do there. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was looking to see what direction when they went in. Um, but yeah, I don't, it was just like a panic thing. And we've also heard stories of like, if somebody has a vehicle, like they don't just like, Oh, I'm sorry. I got caught and jump out. Like they, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. They're gonna, yeah, they're gonna keep going. Yeah. And so there was really nothing I could have done. So I think it actually was um, a blessing in disguise in that a you, sense that, that, you didn't catch that I didn't go out there earlier. Unarmed. You yeah, know, as soon as I heard it fire up or something, yeah. just to double what, check yeah, on what it are we because do? I can't. Am I gonna pull the guy out of the or the person out of the vehicle? You know, like anyway. And so, but it was really this. Um, I don't know. There was a sense of. Um, I will say that like a violation, yes. you know, just to have somebody like in our truck driving away and, and, and that, I for, that tender space of ours. Right. And for me, uh, you know, when I'm dealing with the, when I've you know had to deal with the death of my son, like the losing of a, a truck is like, I mean, it's not going to be something that it, I would have been far more um, reactive towards it uh, had it been, you know, prior to, I think, experiencing, um, the pain that we had. And so like things don't carry the same weight with me. Um, but there was a processing of, you know, some sentimental, like there was like times there that we had as a family together. And, and that was an important space for you and I, and, and with the kids too, and with Augie. And so, uh, losing that, um, was heavy. You know, I had, you know, was hoping for maybe a, a few more um, adventures this summer. Yeah. You know, in in maybe in Washington or in you know, um, you know, be national forest or something like that, and just camping or whatever. Um, you know, a couple more times because I think we were we were thinking that we'd probably sell it pretty soon anyway. Yeah. But we were just weren't. I wasn't ready to part with yeah. it. Um, then all of a sudden, because they say you know. Go ahead and, you know, post on social media and everything. Well, let me just go back and say, who's they? That's the police. A couple of things are interesting about the police. Uh, they're under uh, under uh, staffed. Mm-hmm. And so the first thing I noticed is I called 911 as the truck's moving away. And I was on hold for quite some time. Right. I have not had that experience in other municipalities. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So like when you talk about place and where you are, the response time might be very different. And here uh, I was waiting for a while. And then uh, what I thought was helpful, and this is a, an, an important piece to thinking about re- at least reform of policing, is they sent out uh, a nice couple people, a guy and a gal that were in, uh, in, like a, in a vehicle that demonstrated they weren't they weren't enforcers. Mm-hmm. They were going to take my statement. They were going to do the write-up and so forth. They obviously had official uh, paraphernalia. But I thought that that was really helpful. Instead of having 
you know, calling the police, having, police having somebody come in and, and just, and having that kind of tension, it was, it was not an escalation of anything mm-hmm. and for the neighbors or for the neighborhood. You know, that was kind of nice. However, it took them a while to get in. And ultimately they said, you're probably going to find it, but ultimately you're going to have to DIY it, <laughs> right? Like mm-hmm. that's how you're going to find it, go on social media and so forth. So we did. And, and somebody saw it down right. by a motel. And we saw it. It was only like, so it was like less than, a, it was about a mile away. Yeah. So we drove over and we did indeed see it. And they also told you, don't ever approach it or whatever. Just, you know, so we called once again, called the police. Um, and here we are, Christian anarchists. Like, well, I call the police. You <laughs> well, know. yeah. Well, you got to do I mean, it. We can't yeah, just go get it ourselves. And, and part <laughs> of it too is obviously, um, I mean, we did have insurance and right. insurance we requires need a, police a police report and everything, obviously to document. And we're working <clears> out our, uh, our political ideology or something. <laughs> um, but anyway, so the police then go and open it up. And sure enough, there's somebody in there. So they bring him out, sit him out, talk to him. Um, and then and go ahead and explain. Well, what they just let him go because yeah. all he has to say is, I did not steal this car. I was sleeping in this abandoned vehicle. And so the fine is negligible right. and they don't want to process it. They're not going to book this guy. And he's not, he's not going to pay it's, it. It's as if he was squatting in an abandoned building or sleeping in an abandoned bus that was off the, on the side of the road. So the worst that could happen to this guy is he'd get a fine. He can't it's called pay o- yeah, for it. Occupying an, un, you know, an, an abandoned vehicle. Yeah. Right. right. That's all like that. they would get. They kick him out. And he claims that none it. of the stuff inside is his. There was a couple skateboards. That was nice. Yeah. They took, the camera, our, our Canon camera, they they left some things like speakers and electronics. But the thing that was sad is the main thing I wanted was the student art that we had put up on the on the inside. Mm-hmm. For instance, the St. George one out of one woodcut by Kara Durr, former student from Concordia, made this really cool thing that I was going to turn into uh, like maybe a tattoo. I still have a photograph of it, so that's helpful. But I wanted to recover that. And strangely, they took those things. They probably wanted, you know, maybe sell them at a flea market or something because they're, they were kind of cool. But it also smelled like pee-pee and cigarettes a little bit. So yeah, and they also were saying be super careful because, um, you know, there's likely needles, yeah. um, which we did find. There was a syringe on the back. Yeah, I found that. Okay, then, so this ain't, saying this that ain't they Rancho have, Santa Margarita, friends. have, friend. you know, he, he said that there's, <laughs> you know, a lot of diseases, you know, HIV, all sorts yeah. of different things. So, so I wasn't feeling, I wasn't feeling really great about things at that point because, you know, I mean, there was kind of a, it was a blow to my ego to say, Hey, look, I'm setting out on the world. We're, we're in this new place. We're really thrilled about this new place. Well, and they, and they also, and then something gets stolen right from out from under. And they took off, um, like almost all of the stickers that we had on the back, um, the very back of it, Mm -hmm. they left the Frogstein uh, sticker, which was interesting. And Hey friends, if you're, if you're listening, uh, sorry for the situation you get yourself into. I I wish you wouldn't have stolen my vehicle. It was kind of meaningful to us. You can feel free to drop it back off at front if you you want. Uh, but they had, they had the protect your noggin, um, (laughs) magnets all over (laughs) Mm. <laughs> they kind of like yeah. they placed those out. So anyway, the police they kicked the guy out. They um, you know, they released the vehicle back to us. Um, and then we we're trying to figure out because you know the ignition's all messed up or whatever. And we don't know how to hotwire a car. So anyway, um, so we're waiting for a tow truck to come, and it's taking several hours. And so, and meanwhile, we're sitting there, and there's, I don't know, we're not in a safe part of 
of the town, uh, the area. It's not like we're, you know, we should just be hanging out ourselves necessarily when, you know, it's yeah, not our, it's not place, our neighborhood. Yeah. It's not, you know, it's not where we really should be hanging out. So anyway, um, and we had Bendy with us in the car. She gets a little agitated because it's been a long time. So we're like, okay, we'll just just quickly go drop her off at the house so she can stop whining at us. We come back and the truck is gone again. So they just went right back and stole it or somebody else stole it. And we're going, oh, man. So we file another police report. And that took me, it took me like 25 minutes to get the first thing going. Or no, the 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 911 took a long time. Then they just referred me because it was too late. By the time I talked to them, they said, well, the car's already gone. gone so now you're just going to do a non-emergency report. Took me an hour to get on hold for that. And so, so it just wasted two started, days of yeah. the week. Yeah, we would have this podcast to you sooner, friends, <laughs> if it hadn't yeah, gone that way. Yeah, I think it was like nine o'clock when we, you know, got the message or something like that. You know, about the truck being spotted, and um, and I think I don't know. It was like three o'clock by the time you were able to finish filing your second, you know, police or having your second conversation with the the police people that right. came over and all that. So it was like. That was a whole day <laughs> and such um, a whole world of emotions. And then then also that same day <laughs> at about five o'clock or so in the evening, five or six in the evening, um, our one of our friends from Concordia had kindly said that they would keep an eye on um, Oz, Augie's uh, Mazda, which was a newer vehicle that... Which we can't afford. Yeah, so we he were, was making more money. We were going to turn it. We were turning it back into Mazda, waiting for them to come bring some kind of tow truck or whatever. Yeah. And so it had been a long process. So on the same day too. So on the same day, vehicle. Yeah. So then you know we get told that the Mazda has left the building, and so it was like this bu- big, like sentimental day of just you know emotion. Like, yeah, and just loss. emotion. You know. But friends. We're hanging in there. Hope you're hanging in there. What we want to reflect, though, here for you is uh, on is this is this question of the interconnectedness of different forms of emancipation. What I like the f- the phrase I like, Stacy's a little you know hesitant on it, is full spectrum emancipation. The reason I like this idea of full spectrum emancipation is related to the studies I've been doing with students on on freedom and economic freedom especially, and the ways in which our worldviews with respect to the church and the economy uh, and, and, our, and, and all of the parts of our life are intertwined. And if you don't set yourself free from all of it, then the other parts are going to probably have a way of pulling you back in. And we are in no way saying that we have this figured out. No, nor no, have no, no. We, this um, is the journey know, we're on. This is, yeah, this is what we're trying to figure out. But what you, when you start to kind of unravel like a, a small piece of it, then you realize how many more things and how many more layers there are mm. to all of these things. If you have a job in the rat race and you want to quit that job, you might not be able to live in a place that your rent is going to be $5,000 a month. So that means you're going to have to live somewhere else. And if you do, that means you're going to live somewhere else where there are people that aren't making as much money as the place where you were, and there's more likelihood that people are going to be at the bottom of that economic spectrum, and therefore they're going to have more of an in, you know, in, incentive to steal things, right? Or more likely uh, also an incentive to... Uh, to get involved in addiction as a way of self-medicating, mm-hmm. you know, these all these things are are inter, 
intertwined. But I think also for me, you know, uh, the most important has been the idea of full spectrum, not just being uh, about all of the aspects of our life. It's the things that we don't see. So the full spectrum also refers to not just the visible light, but infrared, ultraviolet, you know, the, the, the bands of light that you can't see, but that are also affecting things. Mm -hmm. It also has to do with uh, racial emancipation. So it can't just be that I'm going to get myself free, but I'm going to allow other groups to not be empowered. And, and, and maybe I have more of a privileged connection that they wouldn't have to be able to find that kind of freedom and happiness in life. Mm -hmm. But also it relates to LGBT uh, freedom as well. And I, and I think this is where I just want to pause for a second and say, one of the things that is making me nervous about the country as we see people moving from places to other places is that sometimes people are going to states um, that have very low investment in the public schools and they are fine with it because they're going to go to a Christian school or they're going to homeschool and thereby reenact a kind of segregation. It's not legal segregation. It's not Jim Crow. But if you, you know, if you've got a ten thousand dollar a year tuition, fifteen thousand dollar a year tuition for a parochial high school, you're able to de facto segregate, pull your students away from from whom whoever can't afford it, right? Or who's not welcome. Mm -hmm. So if I don't want my kids hanging out with LGBT kids that are open and affirmed. Uh, then I'm either going to go and say, you know, uh, hassle the school district. And, and a lot of these states are kind of involved in this where they want to lock down any conversation about gender and sexuality. Um, and so there's, I'm, I'm nervous about it. I'm, well, I'm nervous about the, 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 what you've described as kind of the scapegoating of the trans community, especially because it's the, well, what I'm, the one thing that people I seem to be allowed it, to do. What I seem, what I seem to see is that there's, in like in, in all societies or whatever, there because hierarchy often does exist. That means there's something or someone on the bottom, you know. Uh, and that makes us feel better when we're getting crushed and when, from the top. When anybody is, as long as they're not on the bottom, then they can at least be happy, or they can at least always say, "Well, at least I'm not X. I yeah. at least I'm not this person or whatever." And so, I. Right now, it seems like, um, you know, the, that the country is seeming to have find common ground in basically um, sort of, a, a, I would say, attacking or um, not caring about the rights of the LGBT Oh, community. I think it's attacking. Especially we, we haven't seen as much of a proactive move. And a lot of people on the right are saying... You know, they're describing people that want to be uh, affirming and protective of the LGBT students but, and, but as being groomers. They're yeah. saying like, oh, you're grooming people to uh, being abused. No, not if you're teaching consent, right. you know, and, and that's that's a, I think it's well, a big thing. Well, and I think, um, you know, what is interesting is, is that, um, you know, America, we, you know, often will say liberty and justice for all. But. I mean, there's always seems like certain groups that are not allowed actively excluded to have that equal or that li that liberty or that or being equal or or justice, you know. And so, you know, it's like, why is it that we as human beings almost need to control other people yeah. or other groups if they're, you know, like, what is it like? 
I think we all need to focus on ourselves and our own problems before we start criticizing or picking on other people and what they see as their problems. And, and it's a way of being able to actually ignore what your real problems are for your own self. <laughs> or societally. And right. I think this is, this is the big piece. So obviously at our individual level, we, we want to play into this uh, to make ourselves feel better. But I think that authorities, the system, especially the economic system, kind of needs there to be this stratification for a variety of reasons. It, it brings people together culturally when you have an enemy, a common enemy. Right. But this is, this is, of course, the fascists used this. This is very handy for the Nazis, you know. But, but, but we all do it. Democrats, Republicans do it. They'll start a war or they'll start a conflict or th there'll be some other kind of foreign thing that galvanizes people around a political leader when there's division, when they're losing support at home. Mm -hmm. um, but I think, I think this, this takes us back to a theme we've mentioned a, f a few times on the show before, but it's this idea of cultural hegemony. Cultural hegemony uh, being a, a very important sociological concept, but originally a hegemon was somebody in the ancient Greek city-states that was going to be having political and military control and economic control over other city-states. So Thebes or Athens or Sparta might have hegemony in the Aegean, right? Mm -hmm. But today, when we talk about it in social sciences, cultural hegemony is the ways in which uh, the dominant culture or the dominant rulers, however you want to put that, um, in our case, it's political and corporate, wealthy people, essentially, in league with church and state, want to keep people in line. And one of the ways you keep people in line is to give people the sense that there is this ladder. And if you snooze, if you're not actively engaged in running the race that they have set out for you, you're going to be a loser. And so it's important for people to see losers. It's important for people to see other people being ostracized and punished. And it almost doesn't matter what that issue is. Right. That's why, that's why I'm, I'm very nervous about this uh, anti-trans uh, and, and, and generally anti-LGBT you know, anti push. We've seen it before in, in kind of the culture wars, but we haven't seen it, I think, as aggressive uh, as, as recently. Mm -hmm. it's, a, it's, a, it's a thing where people are getting fired up. People are protesting Disney for having an agenda. And it was really, it really kind of disheartening for me to notice that there are people, pastors and others, that are thinking that this is the number one thing that they need to be worried about. Well, and I think it, to be honest, I think it's a backlash from like when there was all of the protests and things like that. Yeah. Black Lives Matter. So people are like, okay, we can't really, um, you know, we can't go after the black community. Mm -hmm. So what? you know, what community right now can we go after then? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so I'm kind of, and I think part for me of why we wanted to be in Portland is we're trying to find a place where at least in theory, if, you know, if I have loved ones and friends and family that are LGBT, I want them to know that we're in a place that is at least going to have some modicum of, of, of safety for who they are. And I don't feel that in some parts of the country. There are some parts of the country where I don't feel safe 
right? So I wouldn't expect others to feel entirely safe. And, and I mean safe in a totally different way than maybe listeners you're thinking. I'm not saying there's places that are unsafe because they're economically depressed and there's a lot of crime. I'm talking about places where um, a gay man, like in, a, a gay man was, was choked on the Balboa Peninsula by a homophobic uh, proprietor. Mm. And I'm thinking, okay, just like that's, that's the kind of thing that frightens me, mm-hmm. especially when those kind of forces are very difficult to push against at an individual level. Right. One of the things we liked about Portland last summer was there, I think we may have mentioned, there was somebody who was trans that was getting hassled by some patrons at this pub. And then the rest of the patrons just quietly made them understand that it was time for them to leave. And I said, that's the kind of place I want to be in because the only way there's going to be safety for everybody is when the community understands that we're all we're all connected and that we all are going to be free and happy only when we're all free and happy. And if we leave any group, if we don't, if, if we care about race, but we don't care about women, right. if we care about, um, uh, you know, adults, but not the plight of children, you know, if we care about workers, but not immigrants, right. uh, then at some point, those, those sinful relations are going to come back to haunt us and they will. I don't need you to join me politically in thinking the way I think about libertarian socialism, but, but you probably should consider that if you continue to crush masses of people so that you can have really, really nice things and that disparity gets broader and broader, it's never worked out in civilization. Eventually that goes pop. Well, and people need to feed their kids. People need to you know, like make a living, you know, somehow, you know, and have some semblance of a life. And when, when you get to the point where you can no longer, you know, have just some basic, you know, basic being able to live and feed your family and things like that, eventually people get so desperate that they have to turn to other, um, you know, other methods to try to deal with some of these issues. Now, I was mentioning this idea of cultural hegemony. What, but what do they to have it. to lose? Yeah. You know, what right. do you have to lose? You're, right. already, you're already not surviving, you know, or not surviving well. So here's the part about the, what, what do you have to lose? Cultural hegemony, an idea that was, you know, really articulated by this guy, Antonio Gramsci, while he was sitting for years and years in prison in, um, under, the, under the fascists, in Italy, he was observing how these things all work together. And ultimately, the, the gist is, instead of controlling people, people just through you know, military and police forces, through force, you can control people by controlling their, their the framework. Yeah. And the way you do that is by creating what normal looks like. Right. So this is why I think the idea of cultural hegemony is so important, because when you live in a place, you're, you're getting duped in your own way of thinking because you start to think that the way that you're living is the only world possible. Like that's the world for you. Mm-hmm. And I can guarantee you, we've lived so many places that the world looks very different in Manhattan and in Kentucky and in the mountains of Colorado and Portland and Orange in OC. County, yeah. These are all very different places. And yet everyone there seems to think this is just the way it's done. Mm-hmm. This is what normal mustard looks like is it yellow or brown <laughs> you know it's like these yes things. It's some places normal is you know a different kind of mustard that's true and there's a great tyranny for young people when they see 
okay, this is what the normal family looks like on TV. This is what the ideal family looks like on billboards. This is what I'm expected to get for a house. And therefore, this is the kind of job I need to get into. And this is the kind of debt I should get into. In other words, sometimes where we live just kind of flows us into a place ideologically that might not be for our best interest. Now, the thing about the ask, asking the question, what do we have to lose? Cultural hegemony, in one way, could be stated this way. Cultural hegemony is this force in culture, in a society, where you will act against your best interest because you think that if you don't go with the system, then the whole world will end. Mm-hmm. Right. In other words, if I don't do this thing, everything's going to fall apart. And I think that is the reason why there's so much rhetoric against trans people and trans students in America, because really what they're saying is if you go the way of these new progressive ideas, if you're going to go for this idea that all human beings have rights and are free to make their own personal path, life, life choices, then if that's the case, then um they, they know that their system is crumbling. Mm-hmm. So you need to have these kind of hot button issues. For a long time, it's been abortion. This is coming back in, into play. It, I don't believe it's about abortion. I don't believe it's about human sexuality. I believe it's about control. I believe it's about money. I believe it's about the ability for corporations to hire who they want to hire and not be forced to have equity in, and inclusion mm-hmm. in their world. And it's a, it's a battle that doesn't immediately look like it's about these things, but I really, I'm really convinced that it is. Because ultimately, there's so many people I know that their struggles in life, what are they? Oh, well, I mean, they can't afford to buy a home. Yeah. So uh, many people, especially our age. They aren't making you know, enough money to not... They get further and further in debt. They sometimes can't afford health care or not, mm-hmm. you know, certainly not proper health care, mm-hmm. even if they have some basic um, mm-hmm. health care. Or they, or, they, or they have an employment with a religious employer that refuses to cover things that they don't agree with, like, like birth control pills. Right, right, <laughs> right. So yeah. it's like all, I mean, isn't that all connected? The healthcare system with the ideology with, you know. Right, well, because our healthcare system is connected with our employment and the employment. Yeah, which is on a, a side issue. Horrendous. Right. Right. <laughs> Horrendous. I mean, it, and, then, and then I'm doing taxes for Cindy. She so, didn't have health care. And so she's going to get docked for not having health care, which is, you know, this part of the Obama package. Right. But so it's, it's expensive to be poor. <laughs> it is. It is. Um, yeah. Because then you also have higher interest rates on your debt. Yep. Right. Uh, you, you get yourself further and further in a situation where, a, um, you know, the idea of retiring of what, like the way that people used to be able to retire, I think is disappearing. I mm. think more and more people have to work up until, you know, they, I guess it's no longer even possibly physically possible for them. And then, mm-hmm. you know, either they have family that can help take care of them or, um, or they become, you know, a ward of the state or something. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the horizons are looking bleaker and bleaker, yeah. you know, to, Properly being able to feed and clothe your own children, take care of their, you know, all of their physical needs and everything. Um, and then, then you think of their educational needs and stuff. Yeah. And so properly making sure that they have, you know, good education. Do they have, you know, if, if college is their thing, will they have access to that? There's just so many, um, these, you know, pressures that yeah. are on just 
the 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 family today, like the parents, and and it's it is um, it's demoralizing. Yeah. Because it, I, you know, I, you don't see a way out. Uh, you know, it doesn't. It's like, it, and everybody, I I think that there's like that. Um, I don't know. You can kind of hold on to the. Well, maybe maybe I'll win the lotto, or maybe you know, mm. or or maybe I'll find out that I have some you know inheritance or something. Mm. But if like if you're not going to have this you know savior of some sort of other situation coming in, um, it, there's really no hope for your economic you know your situation to be any different. So so imagine you're a young couple trying to make ends meet in Orange County. Yeah. Right? Oh. I mean like Augie and Sydney were living in, in a, a closet studio, for 1200 bucks a month. Uh, no, for, I think it was like closer to $1400 yeah. a month and it was a studio apartment. Dude next door overdoses on hard drugs. I mean it was it was yeah. a little rough there. And so you're trying to say okay, how am I going to how am I going to navigate this? You don't necessarily because of cultural hegemony have a clear mind in this. That's the, the key. You're being controlled in ways that people don't even know they're controlling you, mm-hmm. let alone do you know you're being controlled. But the assumptions in the advertising and in the development of houses and in, in all of this, um, you could understand that another world is possible. But the reason it's hard to catch that message is there's no incentive for, let's say, the private Christian schools to investigate that. Mm-hmm. I'm not talking about mine in, in particular, but all of the Christian colleges. Christian colleges get a lot of their money from tuition, but a lot of their money comes from charitable donations from people that don't want to give it in taxes to go back into poverty relief. They want to go to reinforce the worldview, the cultural hegemony of a traditional view of the family and uh, capitalism and Jesus being, being friends. Right. That is... That idea, whether or not any individual professor or administrator wants it to be the case, is going to be reinforced naturally by money itself. Mm-hmm. Money is going to be what funds the college. So there's no incentive to care about the poor when it comes to Christian colleges, even though Christianity originally was all about the poor, both in Jesus's teachings and in James. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, you, you see that's very obvious, but there's no way to really carry that forward. It's very difficult to carry that forward. Likewise, the corporations that are, that are there, they're sponsoring things, sports teams, whatever, but it's all, it's all for money and commerce, right? It's capitalism is mm-hmm. the, is the essentially the dominant system that we're talking about. And what, and, and when money is the main thing that, that is care you know you care about making more money you know for whatever your business is then that also means that you know however you can get the the cheapest product you know or you know so that sometimes is also the cheapest labor and mm-hmm. you know so it keeps weighing more and more on you know to streamline costs to make as much money and you know it's it's all of the workers yeah. that are suffering in all of this, trying to make this happen while they continue to live with less and less so that the companies and the, you know, and the big bosses can be making more and more. The average working family, even in affluent places, does not have a lot of voice anymore. Right. There's not a place for that. And the publications, you know, are run by very wealthy people and wealthy co- corporations. So even if you're looking at a CNN or an MSNBC let's just set aside Fox News, which, you know, Rupert Murdoch is fabulously wealthy, but these other media organizations, they're working for companies and advertisers. So 
The, the point is, it is very difficult to get the right information that you might need. And what we found in Orange County, incredibly difficult to organize, mm-hmm. incredibly difficult to have protests, to be active mm-hmm. and politically active. And that's all on purpose. It's all part of the, the part of the system. And so I think it's really important not only for us to be ourselves in a place that's that's conducive for uh, like growing and, and engaging with each other through mutual support, mutual aid. It's also important if you have kids to understand that where you are is sending these subtle messages. And there could be all sorts of different ones. We always used to say people would, you know, in the conservative religious world, be uncomfortable that we would watch, you know, South Park with the kids. And I always said, I'm not worried about cussing or, you know, irreverent stuff on the TV. What I'm worried about are sitcoms that have a, a kind of reinforcement of a, of a thin sexuality, uh, a casual sexuality divorced from deep connection that have the assumptions of bourgeois American society in terms of where you should live. I mean, there's these subtle well, messages that are going to be affecting in, your kids. And even sometimes how they portray the mother or the father in yeah. any of these shows. Because, you know, sometimes reinforcing these other stereotypes and or these course, roles yeah. or whatever. Yeah. And this is how, you know, they make fun of either the, you know, either one for acting in certain ways or, um, or not, you mm-hmm. know, being uh, a certain thing. My fear though, Stacy, is as we look at this from a, now a spiritual side, that one of the things that I'm demoralized about, I would say, about Southern California religion is that Orange County in the 70s and in the 80s had this rise of the Jesus freaks. Mm-hmm. You had the hippies like Lonnie Frisbee, um, you know, baptizing people in the Laguna Beach. You had everybody getting excited about reading their Bibles. It's, it's a surprisingly religious place, Orange County. And in spite of all that, there is, as far as I'm concerned, a, a, a takeover of all that by another thing, by corporate interests. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, like Craig Laurie, who did the big, you know, he does the big, uh, uh, you know, like these, these big harvest festivals and so forth. He's bringing people to Jesus, but arguably not the, the theology of Jesus related to emancipation. Mm-hmm. And it's not surprising to me that a lot of that is funded by wealthy donors, yeah. right? So what are they really trying to do? I'll tell you this, that... That in, in all of that, I am, I am repentant for tolerating for too long what indeed is cheap grace, which is churches basically salving the consciences of wealthy people, mm-hmm. right? Like, you're a bad person. You don't treat your employees well. You, you know, you got to make compromises in the system, but don't worry, you're forgiven, Right. Right. So people that want to feel okay with God, but don't really want to engage the crises of immigration and poverty and and, and disease, you know, I think so. I think that unfortunately, I mean, each and every person would benefit to basically take a look at their own lives and be real with exactly what am I doing that hurts other people? What am I, what the way I make money, right? Like what, what are the implications of how, you know, who pays my paycheck and what does that company stand for? Who, how do they treat other people? What, you know, um, 
also acknowledge the ways that you've been hurt, you know, yeah. maybe by this same company or society or, or your upbringing or whatever, but a, a, a basically, um, and I would say in, in a lot of ways, that's what judgment is, is just this kind of this open, wide-eyed look in the mirror of what actions am I doing or not doing that are hurting and then how have I been hurt? And when you can, when you can kind of take a look at that and heal some of that and, and maybe even make decisions, uh, maybe not to, uh, you know, take this certain position or whatever. Um, you it, don't have to participate in these things. You don't. It's and terrifying. It, it's hard not it's to. It's terrifying when you want to go away right. from that because those safety nets, those, you know, I mean, I just want to interject one thing on, on this is I'm looking at new jobs. And if I just would go back and teach for a church related parochial school, mm-hmm. there's job opportunities. Right. You know, if I, if I just wanted to work as a youth leader at a church, I could do that. Heck, I could even play guitar at a church, but I'm not going to do those things. But, but, breaking away from that support mm-hmm. is, is, is a really scary hard. thing. And I will say that it's not, you know, and it's not something that necessarily can even be done overnight. And it's not something, you know, like, you know, I think, but, but, pre, but failing to be honest with yourself mm-hmm. about what your reality is, mm-hmm. it only will continue to hurt you and other people. And, and by being able to just sort of, not really address it and just say, oh, well, you know, I'm, I'm forget, I'm a sinner and I'm forgiven. Mm-hmm. Um, then no actual change will happen, which right. again is definitely to the benefit of the people that are making the money. This is precisely what Bonhoeffer was talking about when he talked about this concept of cheap grace. It was a way for German Christians to say, well, Things aren't perfect, but we're all broken sinners. And so sometimes, you know, you got to make these compromises. And meanwhile, people are getting taken off to Dachau. And when you're, yeah, yeah when you're not being honest with yourself and, and like your own role in society or, or what's, you know, what you've done or what you're not doing um, and what's been done to you, then I think what happens is, is we're, fa- when we fail to actually address our own selves and our own, you know, like then we can't we don't love parts of ourselves, And when we don't actually have some sort of like understanding and love for yourself, you can't really have compassion on somebody else. Um, when you see them doing things or hurting other people or being hurt, you, you kind of have, you kind of gloss over all of it. Right. Mm -hmm. Or it's easy or it's easier to gloss over all of it Mm -hmm. when that's the way that you're functioning. And so also, when you feel like maybe you don't have, um, you know, some control in certain areas of your life, then it's also easier to look to other things and other people to complain about what they're doing, mm-hmm. you know, um, or, you know, that kind yeah. of thing and not take responsibility for yourself. And so what happens is, is that there's less and less of true, like actual love, compassion and humanity towards everybody. Mm-hmm. And I think that then it it breeds more and more hurt and pain in the world mm-hmm. and n- nothing is really being done to stop it because we just say, well, there's nothing that can be done. And so we just let these systems and it feels go hopeless. on. This is called structural sin. Uh, when we talk about in, in theological circles, individual sin and structural sin, they're interrelated. So I guarantee you, if you do what Stacy just suggested, you look at your own life and see how you're implicated in things. If you look closely enough, a lot of the things you're wearing and holding in your hand right now 
are built on uh, human trafficking. You know, the, the unfortunate situation, if you've got a diamond ring on, it's probably a lot of unethical things happened to, to get that to your, your hand. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, we, thing- we're holding cell phones that have these minerals in it that are mined in ways that are uh, very wicked, right? Mm-hmm. Often they just direct slavery. And that's and not I'm, always the case. And but. I'm even just referring to, I mean, and yeah, there's those huge things. And there's also like even just sometimes disharmony in a home yeah. with your children, with your spouse or whatever. If you are able to fully look at and analyze your relationships with your your own parents and then their relationships that they had with their family, you can start to see patterns yeah. and patterns that if you don't ever deal and come to terms with some of those things, then you're going to keep putting that hurt on other people around you because right. you didn't stop and recognize what the real problem was. And so it's easier, it's easier for us to just, if we're going through our own emotional pain or something to, you know, blame a child that's, you know, like, you know, acting out mm-hmm. and maybe they're acting out because they're sensing your energy is off or mm-hmm. something, you know, and like it just perpetuates and becomes this big cycle, this big problem and chaos everywhere. But if you can just stop and look at some of these patterns and figure out what the real problems are in your own life, mm-hmm. then you can start to find more peace. Now, let's look at the problem here with respect to the truck, right? We come with a certain level of privilege. We come into an area. It's a city. You know, I mean, we've, we've always known that you go to a city. There's more auto theft very often. And yet, this is an interesting thing that happens. So there are people that are in these situations in life, however they got there. They're, they're the bottom of society. Mm-hmm. They steal the truck. And then we need to go get the truck. But then they steal it again. The cops can't really do anything about it. And there's almost a system in which the system itself doesn't really care because we've got insurance. So unlike other people that might have lost everything, like their house could have been stolen, essentially. That was we were going to live in it. If, if we didn't end right. up coming here with, with Sydney, you know. Yeah, that was our plan. Our original plan was this this summer, I was going to drive off into the sunset in the truck camper. And now the truck camper is gone. But no fear, because we've got insurance and I'm sure they'll take care of us, right? But why do I have insurance? Because for most of these vehicles, right, you get the, you get the loan, you get into debt. Well, you can't afford to have the debt and you, you actually are forced to have insurance. So there's like a system in which the car company wants me to buy a new truck. Mm-hmm. That's good. So... I'm always going to be surfing at the top. When I'm starting with privilege, I'm going to kind of keep my privilege, even though we're kind of coming close to not having the money to pay. Thing, you know what I'm saying? Like, we're, it's tight right now. Mm-hmm. But uh, we'll be fine. But, you know, like, you can feel stressed with where we are economically, but there are other people that could have had this thing stolen, and they didn't have the money to pay for the insurance. And all we're getting now, if you think about it, is the opportunity to get back into the system put a little bit more in, get a little bit of a newer vehicle and, and stay in debt, Mm -hmm. you know, as opposed to having it. So there's this, well, as there are complicated cycle, there are, there are some really cold nights here and there are people that don't have a warm place to sleep. That is, it's been very cold. It's sitting out in front of our house with nobody sleeping in it Right. right now. Right. You know, so in that sense, like there's somebody that needs a place to, a warm place to sleep. You know, um, one thing that was interesting too, is the day that it was stolen, a, a dude who's living in his RV pulled right up to the front of the house where the, you know, the truck might've been. <laughs> and now 15 feet from our heads, we hear, you know, a somewhat unstable human being living in his vehicle, maybe fighting with his girlfriend. Um, and 
I felt like such a hypocrite for having a problem with it, of course, because we were sleeping in our truck camper in the streets of Portland and having a good old time. And if somebody had a problem with us being there, we were like, oh, uptight squares, right? Mm-hmm. But I realize, oh, just a clarity of the situation is you might have somebody roll up in front of your house and not go for months on end. And you don't necessarily want that. Right. There's one mm-hmm. thing about saying, hey, I don't mind people living in their vehicles, but having somebody live in their vehicle and just kind of hold up for for months at a time and then have their trash sp- spilling out. That's that's a that's an aesthetic problem. It's mm-hmm. also a safety kind of problem. You know, well, what do we do? We didn't have the cops come and push him off. And I felt good about the way we responded to this. So we went out and just talked to the guy mm-hmm. and I said, hey, do you need any tools? Because he was kind of working on the thing. Do you need any supplies? You know, I'd give him food or supplies if he wanted. No. He might have been he might have been up to no good. I don't know, but but being present and and having that humanity and talking to him about how his life had had taken a bad turn. He mentioned about ha- tr- struggled for the last four years. That he's he a great welder, but he doesn't know how to read and take the test. Well, and also his a lot of his tools got stolen from him. Yeah, so it's like it, you know. So I mean, so understanding how we're both victims and victimizers at all these points along the way is not cheap grace. It's a way of saying, because I have unconditional love, because I have grace, I can be discerning. We've talked about this on the show very early on on the show. We talked about the difference between guilt and shame. You don't have to have shame when you look at your own life and see how you're connected with the structures of of evil in society. Mm -hmm. But you should recognize your guilt. And because we live... In this context, if we if we can enter into a state, a spiritual state of unconditional love, that's mm-hmm. the spiritual emancipation piece, I am able to be free to look candidly at myself right. with love. Right. But this is different from this idea of kind of uh, upper upper class, evangelical, cheap grace, where you look at all these sins and say, well, there's nothing that can be done about it. That goes all the way back to St. Augustine, unfortunately, where he says, oh, you can't change the world so let's just focus on heaven. Let's not focus on right. this world. And I think and that's, 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 that's an escape. Go. You know, that just, it's not, it doesn't help anything. There's no way for real change and things that are wrong can continue to uh, get worse. But to what you were talking about with the guy, when we had a conversation with him, one of the things that we did with that is reintroduce the humanity of us and yes. him into the situation. Right. We got to hear his story. He heard about your own story and yep. getting your camper you know stolen from you and that kind of stuff and so and he moved on that night yeah and he even said you know i'm you know i'm not going to be here long but i but the point is is that it is really easy for us to just you know i don't know perhaps judge him we don't know exactly oh he must be on you know some bad drugs or something and maybe he is i don't know but you know hearing a little bit of his story caring about him as a person then you can start to even you know, here, when you hear people's story, you understand what they're going through and you're hearing their plight. <clears throat> that's how you can maybe start to think about, well, okay, where have things gone wrong? Right. But if we're, if we're afraid to even address <clears throat> where the problems are or where things have gone wrong, then it definitely isn't going to ever change mm-hmm. uh, the way that the system is. And, you know, one of the things that I've always kind of thought to myself is, uh, you know, I wonder, you know, if I were thinking, okay, if I were living in eternity, say, and, you know, or whatever, or, and then, you know, would I ever want to be born into this world, you know? And I think that what's really sad is we're getting more and more to the point 
I feel that I would honestly say that I think that, yeah, I would love a stab at, you know, living, living a life on earth. Mm-hmm. Um, it just seems like there's so much uh, needless suffering and, and pain and, and hurt that we are all causing each other. Like just the way we don't care about other human beings that it's getting closer and closer to the point where I would say, you know, like I'm not so, I just, I don't know that the good outweighs the bad. And I don't want it to be a situation where people don't want to have babies because they're It's not a good wager. Right. And and forget about whether you should have babies. If you just ask the question that Stacy's asking, if you wanted to just randomly roll the dice and plop back into existence, let's say maybe not reincarnation all the time, but just this time, if you knew that after you died, you were going to be able to come back to this earth, would you roll the dice and come back? Maybe you're wealthy now. You probably wouldn't be wealthy then. I think that's a thing for us all to, to, to ponder that idea that we, and I'm not saying I believe yeah. in reincarnation. I'm simply no, saying it's not a good wager. A human being coming into this earth, right? It's a huge gamble. Yeah, and uh, and 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 the wager isn't a good one. Mm-hmm. If you just look at the demographics of of society, there's war, there's poverty, there's people unable to move from one country to the next, and they're stuck in a crap situation. And this is a we have a beautiful world with beautiful nature. Yeah. Like there's so much that like you know that. I mean, there's, there's so much joy that comes when, you know, when you are in loving relationships with, with other, other people and you can mm-hmm. have these beautiful moments here on earth that are amazing. Yeah. And so like one thing that happens is you drive around, um, this beautiful place with all the beautiful budding flowers mm-hmm. here. And we got to the flea market and there's a bunch of people and they have a signs, signs that say, stop having babies. The antinatalists are pretty active right now, uh, at least here in Portland. Antinatalists say it's not ethical to have babies in this world, given pollution, the environment, uh, war, lack of resources. And it's hard to argue against it. One thing that people do is they then get all upset with these folks and say, look, look, look at these liberals. Look at, look at this. This is, this is that, you know, uh, left-wing kind of eugenicist kind of thing. But ultimately the question, and, and the same thing re- re- related to healthcare and, uh, and reproductive, uh, reproductive ethics, is this problem of asking, why would somebody say that and what kind of pain have they experienced in their life mm-hmm. that that makes a lot of sense to them? Mm-hmm. So what happens is people who have lived with abandonment, Maybe they've gone through the foster system, you know, maybe they, they, they are themselves neglected and they're now activists saying, please stop having babies. Not everybody wants to be brought into this world. And then other people, specifically conservative Christians, are going to get angry at them. And I understand, but they also should consider, why would somebody think that? That's what, and that's What's this where world? I'm yeah. getting at. Like, why is it that people can have an experience that would be so bad that they would say they would rather not? have been born into this world. That is super sad. Like that, I, I, I still have hope. <laughs> mm-hmm. I still have hope, but it's, it's getting bleaker. Um, mm-hmm. and I really, 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 really wish that we could all sort of sort of take a look at our, ourselves in our own lives and how can we, you know, what can we do? Um, I don't know, just to make this place a little bit nicer to your, for your next door neighbor, for your own children, for yourself, for your spouse. Like I, you know, you start somewhere and love grows love, yeah. you know? Um, and 
there's not a limited supply of it, (laughs) you know? Yeah. We, we can, we can all share some happiness and freedom Uh, as long as, and this is the key, as long as we rethink the system, you see. Mm. So if the system is all about competition and hoarding and private property and amassing wealth, then you'll always have these problems. So you do have to, that's what I think the whole point of full spectrum emancipation is the idea that you can't just reform the system in one area without thinking about the whole thing. You can't just get yourself spiritually free from church if you don't realize how churches have been co-opted by the powerful and the wealthy. Mm. Money, power, and glory these three gods all kind of uh, swirl around the unholy trinity, if you will, and they try to they try to lock us in. And so the idea is to kind of get free of that. Now, to kind of end cycle on the question of where you live, I think the very practical thing for you to do, friend, if if you're thinking about where you want to live or maybe relocate, you've got to ask before anything else, what are your values? Because yeah. that's where the game is at. Because people are going to insert their values into your head so that you think that those values are the values that are inevitable. Mm -hmm. But you could have different values. For instance, do you like walking and bicycling? Well, Portland all of a sudden becomes a really nice place. Yes, they stole my truck. I wasn't driving that truck. (laughs) I like riding the motorcycle, bicycle, or walking. And we've uh, done... Uh, we, you know, lost some weight walking. It's been yeah. really nice, even though we're, you know, sometimes walking to get a beer, which <laughs> puts it back on. Um, crime's a little higher, right? Uh, certainly auto theft is higher. Community for us is way higher, mm-hmm. right? Diversity is higher. Economic opportunity, a little bit lower, mm-hmm. right? But economic opportunity in things that I love doing, higher, right? right. Nature's around me everywhere. That's beautiful. That's up. That's high. Beauty is around me. That's higher. Oh, but there's also a lot of graffiti and and shabbiness. That's lower. There's water here. That's good. (laughs) I don't feel like, you know, you know, so, I mean, so what are you looking for? What, what, what do you want to do? Ultimately, I think part of the answer is as much as I don't like the fact that America is divided, it probably is a time for people to realize that it's, it's, it's kind of helpful to get near communities that can be mutually supportive and stand together in solidarity for what they stand for. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and even though uh, I, I was not a fan of the, the South during the Civil War, um, there is something to be said for uh, the opportunity for states to be able to set their own agenda, more importantly, local villages, right? As long as you're not enslaving people, then we got to intervene, right? right? I mean, that's kind of the trick to the whole thing. But getting to a place where you can ha- be happy and free, where you can encourage the happiness and freedom of others, that's really good. But all of it's going to be dependent on whether or not you're connected with what flows naturally towards what you want and what your values are. Well, and I would also, I would also say that just because you're receiving some sort of um, paycheck, doesn't mean that you're not a slave to something. Yeah. You know, that's the other like hegemony kind of thing. It's like, oh, well, no, I'm choosing to work there. I get a, you know, I spend my hours and I get a paycheck. But that, that, is it a living wage? You know, can you actually, you know, is. Well, well, maybe it's worse. Maybe it's such a living wage that you can't escape it. Yeah. Because, you know, because right. well, like, yeah. it's you like to, you, now you, now you've got this lifestyle that demands that you do this kind of work, but this kind of work starts to, you know, have, well, you know, pangs of conscience. I mean, I, I know that sometimes too, when you've been in higher positions, um, like within a college, you know, then it's like, there was like this, 
well, well, I might be driving around donors. Like, so what kind of vehicle am I driving? And yeah, what does right, that right, say? Right. There's, you know, so <laughs> right. then do we, do we now have to make a car payment so we have mm-hmm. a, a decent enough car that, you know, that you're not like... No, I did that. When I became an academic VP, I decided maybe I can't be driving donors around in a Toyota Corolla. Yeah, that's what I'm trying yeah, to say. Yeah. So your lifestyle, like so your position sometimes then dictate a certain, you know, I don't know, maybe a certain home so you yeah. can host certain oh, gatherings. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, the whole thing's know. tied together. And that's why, I mean, I think a lot of people get caught up in car leases, right? Right. So um, that they can look like they're playing the game, but then everybody's just hustling. Well, and and the more successful that you look to other people, then sometimes you're going to be given more opportunities or they're going to trust in your sales product or whatever, mm-hmm. because, well, you must know what you're talking about because you're successful. So there's all sorts of things and that you can get yourself in a situation where now you have this car payment, this house payment, you know, mm-hmm. these, this credit card debt, you had to afford a certain, um, uh, attire, you know, mm-hmm. your, your whole wardrobe, you know, might, might need to reflect a certain, you know, a certain thing. And you get more and more tied into these with all these expectations. And, you know, how do you, how do you crawl out of that hole? Yeah. So, you know, you know right. And, it, and then you're at 40, you're at 44 years old, 45. And you say, I'd like to retire, but I can stick it out just a little longer so I can get my pension. Yeah. And they just kind of get you to the end yeah, and then they spit you out. Well, or there's certain jobs that you're not going to be able to get because they're, they figure that they're going to have to give you some sort of pension, right? Yeah. Well, in my case, I was really hoping to work in Portland with the prison system to teach prisoners at the, uh, at the community college level. And I know there are some other options, but to work directly for the prison system, which has its own ethical issues for me. But, yeah. um, but I wanted to do that, but they wouldn't give it to me because you can't get the job if you're older than 36 because they realize that there's a nice benefits package, <laughs> but when you're, when I could retire at 55. Well, that would be like, you know, uh, seven years from now. So, so they want you to be able to put more in. Point, point being, it, 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 is, it is tricky. Mm-hmm. And, and for those of you who are younger, I would advise you to think very, cl- very clearly about what you want to be shooting for and the ethical implications and the lifestyle implications for that. Let me say you can only be as ethical as, as your choices. As your means. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's definitely, that's definitely a big piece of it. Uh, now, Stacey, uh, you know, uh, we're going to come back more now in this season to finish up with the Tao Te Ching. We, we are really excited about getting a couple of our publications out now that we're going to be in a little bit more of a free space. Um, and so, uh, but we do want to go back to chapter eight of the Tao Te Ching. Would you read that for us, Stacey? It's about where to live. Hmm. Sure. To discover the greatest good, flow like water. Water pours life into all creatures without striving. It pools in places men disdain. This is how it's like the Tao. So make your home in low places. Draw from the deep well of the heart. Offer kindness to others. Let your words be sincere. Govern justly. Let your work be your art. Remain present with everyone you encounter. Live without striving and people won't try to pull you down. So that's kind of an interesting piece to it. If you're scared, especially if you see people that are wealthy, like I saw in Guatemala, that have to live in a prison Mm. of their own making Mm -hmm. to keep out all the poor people, Mm -hmm. um, there's another way to do it, (laughs) which is to live at one with people, Mm -hmm. okay? Now, um, there are the downsides to it, of course, and and yet 
the trade-off is, okay, I'm living in a place where somebody might steal my truck and I don't want that. I'm going to have to take, you know, steps. You put people, put the boots on and so forth. But more importantly, to recognize the way in which for me, at least the things that I value, I want to do, I don't need that vehicle so much. I'm going to walk where I've been walking everywhere. Right? So that works for me. I'm not saying this works for everybody, but what does work for everybody is finding out if there's a way that they could live without that constant striving for things that are not eternal. Right. Right. And the other thing I like is when they talk about being like water, Mm -hmm. what they really mean is receiving the resources, being somewhere that is going to kind of flow naturally towards the resources instead of going somewhere that's super hot and then paying to have everything air conditioned, but not being near let's say, a, a natural energy source mm-hmm. <laughs> to do it. I mean, that's, that's a bad idea just because it's going to be costly. It's going to be too much yang. You're pushing uphill. Mm-hmm. You might want to flow. Well, <laughs> and, and the other thing I was thinking too is, um, you know, how, and how do you find, um, so how do you define success? And then when you look at what you think success is, how did you come to that view? point mm-hmm. of what success is like, you know, was that something that you actually felt inside of you or mm-hmm. is that something other people have put into your mind to make you think that that is what success is? Um, and as the Tao Te Ching would say, sometimes there's really no difference between our success and our failures because we learn lessons from both. So I don't know, but I just think that how we define success and one of the things is, is when even, even if you don't have a clear view of what that is for yourself, you can also get in that rat race of always wanting to be higher, you know, mm-hmm. like always wanting, you know, are you going to, I don't know, like, you know, where do you stop, right? In the, the corporate ladder, say, you know, where do you think, you know, is it just only when you get to the very top? Is that when you would, you know, ever give yourself permission to maybe relax a little bit mm-hmm. and not keep trying to climb. I don't know. I don't think, um, I don't think our business world ever really has a ceiling on anything. Mm-hmm. There's always something higher. And I think that that keeps people often striving for something and they don't even know exactly always what that is. And friends, whether you're looking at this from the perspective of the teachings of Jesus, the teachings of Lao Tzu here, the Tao Te Ching, or just could old fashioned wisdom, that constant striving is definitely not, that's definitely not the way to, uh, to find calm in life. Right. And you're, and you're missing out on what actually, you know, would bring you joy and a sen- you know, just a sense of, uh, like fulfillment. Right. And, and to be honest, <laughs> real deep peace upon peace. Thank you so much, friends, for joining us for this episode of the Protect Your Noggin podcast. You want to join in on the conversation? We'd love to respond to your questions or comments on a future show. You can record a message by going to protectyournoggin.org and clicking on the blue voice message button. And don't worry about getting it perfect since you'll have five minutes and a chance to preview your message before sending. You can also send an email if you're not comfortable with leaving a voice message. Please also follow us on Twitter at the PYNP. And rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you found this show of any help, uh, why not share it with a friend? Until next time, peace upon peace, friends. But he said that wasn't any letter. He said that was going out of my mind. Not going out of your mind. You're slowly and systematically being driven out of your mind. Why? Why? Perhaps because you found this letter low too much.